You know, as we've uh, walked through the book of Second Timothy, I started out of the very first message saying that hard times are coming. You know, hard times are here already in many ways. I said that these are times that demand a strong church. A strong church composed of strong men and strong women of God. Yet, tragically, I think we all know that we live in a culture of weak men. The church in America is weak. But the epistle of 2 Timothy is so fitting for such times because this portion of Scripture was written during the hardest of times imaginable. Times that demanded a strong church, strong leaders in the church, strong men and strong women of God. Again, to recap the context, it's the year 67 AD. The Apostle Paul is writing to his younger colleague, Timothy. Timothy is left in Ephesus to oversee and pastor the churches in Ephesus, which is the second largest city in the entire Roman Empire. But Ephesus and the rest of the Mediterranean and and civilized world essentially is under the Roman Empire. And who is leading the Roman Empire at this time? It is the Emperor Nero, a crazy man, a savage man, a brutal man. And Paul is writing this epistle to Timothy in a Roman dungeon awaiting execution. Meanwhile, Nero is murdering Christians far and wide. Persecution is rampant. Yet while this is going on, Paul is not dismayed for the future of the church. That's not the tone when we get when we read this message. Of course, he's preparing Timothy for the many battles that lie ahead of him of false teachers, of deceivers, of false believers, oh, and of course, persecution from the government. Yet, Paul is confident in God. Paul is confident in the race he's run, but he's also confident in the ministry and the man that God has placed to pastor in Ephesus. And that is, of course, his dear child in the faith, Timothy. Now, describing all of that, the world that this letter is written in, how, in fact, could Paul at all be so confident in the much younger Timothy's ability to pastor a church with enemies outside and enemies within and a church that's meeting under the threat of death in such bleak times? Timothy, who has been trained up under the wing of Paul, but he's relatively inexperienced. How could Timothy possibly be equipped to stand strong in the face of such opposition? Well, God is sovereign and God wins, so there you go, number one. But also in this passage, we'll see that Timothy was equipped to be strong. He was equipped with three critical components that we're going to explore today in this passage. Now, these three things are necessary for all believers in these times, in any times. And these are the three things. Timothy was equipped because he had a strong role model. Timothy was equipped because he had strong convictions. And Timothy was equipped, most importantly of all, because he had a strong foundation in the Word of God. So if you haven't already, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10-17. through 17, And we'll read the first couple verses here. Starting in verse 10, we see, You, however, have followed my teaching, 
my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So first, Timothy is equipped to be strong for Christ in hard times because he has the right role model. He has the right mentor. He has the right discipler. He has the right person to observe and to pattern his own life after. Now, so many believers that I talk to, they, they say, you know, I, I really don't need that. I, I don't need anyone. I've got my Bible after all. I've got the Holy Spirit. Nobody influences me, bad, good, or otherwise. And that is just false. That's not true. We inevitably are influenced by those that we admire. We're inevitably influenced even by those we don't think we admire, but those we surround ourselves with, those we spend time with, those we cherish, and of course, those we look up to. Four weeks back or so, we were covering 2 Timothy chapter 2, and in verse 2 it says, What you have heard from me, Paul is saying, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy is to take what he has learned from Paul and teach it to other people so that they can teach others who then will be able to teach others who then will teach others and so on it goes. And we talked about what that is. That's discipleship. That we are to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples and how that's gone on for the entire history of the church. Then on that Tuesday night, following that Sunday, another plug for our our Tuesday night when we gather, we talked about the need for discipleship right here in the church. That's where it's supposed to happen. Maybe not in these walls, but those of us one anothering one another. This is a family, a church of God. So you need to have a person or people in your life who can mentor you, who can set an example for you, who can teach you and hold you accountable. But at the same time, you also need people in your life who you can mentor and disciple and teach and hold accountable. So discipleship is a work that all believers are called to. But then we had that discussion, and it was it was wonderful, certainly with the men that I was a part of. But inevitably, the question comes up, okay, we get that discipleship is important, but what exactly does it entail? What does, what does discipleship look like? Well, I am so glad you asked because this passage is rich in these two verses with giving a detailed look of how Paul discipled Timothy. We get to peer back the curtain a little bit and see what Paul's relationship with Timothy looked like as a disciple, discipler and disciple relationship. So let's dive in. We see right there at the beginning in verse 10, you've followed my, and I just want to pause right there. Because to follow means so much more than to just track along. You know, we use that like, hey, you following me? You know what I'm saying? If you're giving someone directions on where to go to a certain place, hey, you following what I'm doing? No, it means much more than just to pay attention. It means to walk alongside. It means to accompany through the thick and thin. It means to diligently fully understand what a person is saying and so much more to carry out these ideas and put them into practice. Many of you are 
familiar with 1 Corinthians 11.1, even if you don't know the reference, but Paul implores the Corinthian Christians to imitate me as I imitate Christ. In which he's saying, insofar as I imitate Christ with my life and conduct, I am going to set an example for you right in front of your own very eyes of how you can be more like Christ. Here's a key point with discipleship. Paul was not out to make Timothy into a little Paul. Paul sought to make Timothy into a little Christ. In fact, our word Christian, our word Christians derives from the word that literally means little Christs. You should seek after someone who you can imitate as they imitate Christ, and you should seek to be someone that others can imitate you as you imitate Christ. So what did Timothy follow in Paul? Well, we see right here the first thing is Paul's teaching, his instruction, his doctrine. You know, By this point in their relationship, they've known each other for about a decade now, Timothy has heard Paul preach in a number of locations and settings. He's been personally mentored and discipled by Paul. Timothy has studied, he's poured over the words of Scripture that are all the way through the Old Testament and including the words of Scripture that God has authored through Paul. And then in verse uh, 2 of chapter 2, as I already said, he in turn was to entrust faithful men with that who would be able to teach others also. So, of course, a major component of discipleship is biblical teaching. In fact, in the opportunities that I've had to have a one-on-one discipler relationship, and even the relationships in which I've been discipled, a lot of what we're doing is going through a book of the Bible together. You know, we're just seeing how that applies to our lives, things that challenge us. It's a way to take what we've learned and then entrust to others so that they will be able to do the same for someone else. It's opening up the Word with one another. It's teaching one another in the Word so that they can teach one another. But it's also learning from one another in the Word so that then we can teach others. But beyond just following Paul's teaching, of course, Timothy has also followed Paul's conduct. Paul's teaching on its own, would be 100% bankrupt if Paul himself didn't model it in his daily life. Paul was the real deal. You know, I, I like to say this phrase, more is caught than taught. And what do I mean by that? I'm saying that I know in all the tens of thousands of words that I will say from a pulpit in a given year, the fruit that the Lord has actually been able to use me to produce in my ministry has come much, much more from what I've done than from what I've said. What we, what we do carries far more weight with people than what we say. In fact, what we say is only validated insofar as what we do and how we model that out. So parents coaches, mentors, teachers, disciples, anyone in a relationship like that, the impact of what you say will only go as far as how you live it out in your life. I mean, we've all seen negative examples of that, right? We've all had bosses or coaches or mentors or anyone who is in a position of influence in our life where you know, we've, cert- we've thought at times that they would certainly benefit from following their own instruction from time to time, right? In fact, I 
had a job years ago where my immediate supervisor was sloppy. He consistently showed up late. He slept through things. He missed job assignments and meetings and appointments. And one time I was riding around in a vehicle with him and he said to me, you know, Stephen, professionalism is the key to the work that we do. And I just said, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, that sounds nice. But in the case of Paul, Paul's living was consistent with his teaching. So in turn was Timothy. So in discipleship, keep a close watch on your conduct. Find someone who you can observe as a model of godly living in how they parent their children, in how they treat their spouse, in how they display Christ around the unbelieving world, in how they display Christ in the workplace, and so on. But even beyond that, Timothy has also followed Paul's aim in life, as it says here. Now what that means is, and it's translated in this way in many of your translations, he's followed Paul's purpose. Now this is talking about what drives Paul. Paul's reason for waking up and, and getting out of bed, despite the fact that after decades of persecution for being an ambassador for Christ, it probably took Paul a little bit more effort to get out of bed, especially in his later years here. This is his reason for waking up, the motive the goal. It's about where Paul's eyes are set. Paul had a purpose in everything he did. Every conversation, every business decision, every travel decision, it was all for a purpose. It was for his life calling that was established and set forth by God. And Timothy as I said earlier, he'd accompanied Paul on one of Paul's missionary journeys. He had seen Paul's vision. He had embraced it for himself and decided to live it out in his own life. And that, too, is so critical for discipleship. And that is our aim in life. It's got to be something that can be communicated with other people. It's got to be something that we can model and have modeled for us. What is our purpose? What is driving us? Also, Timothy had seen Paul model fruit of the Spirit and the evidence of a transformed life. So we see these attributes right here. We see in faith. Timothy had seen faithfulness lived out by Paul. He'd seen Paul do whatever was required of him on his assignment by Christ the King. We also see in patience. And patience is so critical in life. It's so critical for strength. And it is so critical for ministry. Because... You are going to face opposition. You're going to face obstacles. You're going to face little things, annoying things, all the way to huge life-altering things in life. And long-suffering or patience is critical for the Christian life because it's so easy to preach about. It's so easy to talk about how patience is a necessary virtue and a fruit of the Spirit, but it's much more difficult to model because it requires much more than words. It requires an extraordinary amount of discipline and it requires the Holy Spirit. But as difficult as it is to model, Patience and long-suffering in the face of hardship is one of the things that can be plainly observed by the watching world. There are many things that we do that people really have to be in your life to see. But patience 
is one of those things that when you are squeezed and you are patient and you are long-suffering, that can be seen. Now, Timothy could very plainly observe it and follow it in Paul's life, but think about this. Paul's patience and his long-suffering would have even been obvious to those who were directly persecuting him. Those who are picking up rocks to stone him. Those who were jailing him. Even to the Roman guards who were jailing him as he wrote this epistle. But then we see also how Timothy has followed Paul in love. Now, we know that love is the greatest of all, right? The greatest virtue, the first fruit of the Spirit. We know that love is the crux of the greatest commandment and the second, to love God and love others. We also know that love is the ultimate progression of spiritual maturity. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. All of the other things ultimately lead up to love. And then we know in Ephesians 4 that when the church grows in unity into Christ who is the head of the church, the body grows in love. Love is a big deal. Love is so central to the Christian life that John states it so plainly for us so we can't miss it. He says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love is a big deal. Now, Timothy could see love not just in the content of what Paul taught, but far more importantly, again, in the way that Paul lived. Timothy could see it poignantly in the life of Paul when Paul had to demonstrate love to the unlovely, to opponents, to persecutors, to jailers, to pagans, to stubborn and difficult people, even to the religious leaders of the faith that Paul was reared in. All of these Paul had to demonstrate love. And I ask you all, do people see love when they see you? Because if they do not see love when they see you, then they cannot see Christ in you. Again, more is caught than taught. You cannot teach Christ to someone if you cannot show them love first. Whether that's someone you're discipling or whether you are sharing your faith out in the the world with somebody, you cannot teach Christ to someone if you cannot show them love first. But Timothy also saw steadfastness in Paul. A steadfastness means to stay the course. Steadfastness requires endurance. It requires pain tolerance. And again, it's something that's easy to teach in words, so much more costly, though, to model. But Paul's faith, patience, love, and steadfastness were all on display the most and in the most visible, visceral, dramatic of ways in Paul's life when the rubber truly met the road. My pastor out in Laramie always like to say that we are like toothpaste. When we're squeezed, what's really inside of us comes out, right? But when Paul was faced with a decision to turn and pursue comfort or to stay in the course and the mission that Christ his King had assigned him for, He had to face unimaginable pain and possible death. And of course, even right now, he's facing death. Every time he heard footsteps down toward the cell in which he was imprisoned in, he didn't know if it was a Roman soldier that had just sharpened his sword to behead Paul, or if it was one who was going to drop in his daily rations. And that is, in times of persecution, we read in 
verse 11, that Timothy had also followed him in my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now, Paul had faced persecution from diverse sources. He faced it from pagans, from Jewish religious leaders. He faced it from the Roman government. And Paul, as he's writing this, he knows a lot about persecution. He's on death row, yes, and he knows a lot about persecution from his personal experience, but he also knows what it means to be a persecutor. He knows the other side of the equation too. Because before his conversion, Saul of Tarsus was a terrorist against the church. He was the chief among persecutors. And Paul was perhaps able to demonstrate his faith and his love in the most dramatic circumstances because he could look his persecutors in the eyes and see just that without the grace of God in his life, he would be there also. So Timothy's followed Paul through the persecution And Timothy has also experienced persecution alongside Paul as well. Timothy, too, has been forced at times to live as a fugitive for the sake of the gospel. And Paul reminds Timothy of a few examples of the persecutions that Paul himself has faced. Now, Paul here doesn't mention every persecution because he would run out of parchment in his prison cell. We would run out of time to talk about them all. In fact, we have the book of Acts from chapter 12 onward, essentially, where we can see it. But he gives three examples, and each of them are in Timothy's home province of Galatia. In fact, Lystra, as it says here, that's actually Timothy's own hometown. It was there where Paul was stoned and left for dead. Now, I think that Paul selects these three examples because it's very likely that all three of them could have been things that Timothy could have seen with his own eyes. He could have seen with his own eyes and Timothy could realize that he had a real deal as his discipler. He had a strong role model. He had a discipler that faced persecution and was able to endure everything in steadfastness, but also one who understood that without the grace of God working in his life, he too would be the one gathering the stones. He too would be the one sharpening the sword. Yet we see here that Paul and Timothy are not the only ones who did face persecution or who will face persecution. That's why this is so important for us. Verse 12 and 13, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Well, there it is. The Bible gives a lot of guarantees to a genuine believer. Does the word not? I mean, you are guaranteed forgiveness of your sins in Christ. You're guaranteed to have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You're guaranteed to have eternal life and a resurrected body and so much more. But we have another such guarantee here. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All will It's important that Timothy knows this so that he's being prepared. It's important that we know it so we're prepared. And Paul includes this right here in the last epistle he would ever write. Now, you may not be imprisoned or beaten or 
executed, but you very well may face alienation for not having the aim in life as the rest of the world. In fact, First Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 say, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. You may not face the dramatic civil and religious persecutions that Paul faced, but you may face alienation from those you knew in your life before. Now, Paul also knows that those who reject Christ are not going to just magically improve. Throughout the church age, no, we see that those who oppose the church are going to continue to do so. We see two classes, that there are evil people, and I think he's talking about the outright blasphemous, the hostile, the persecutors, or, if you will, the enemies of the church from outside the church. And then there are imposters, the outwardly pious but inwardly blasphemous, the enemies within the church. And they're going to go, as it says here, from bad to worse. People are deceiving, and they are also being deceived themselves, and they aren't going away. But as for you, we read in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So earlier we had our first key. Timothy was equipped for strength, in life and in ministry, because he had a strong role model. He had a strong discipler. But now we see our second key for being equipped, and also our third, which we'll get to later. Our second is that you know Paul can have confidence in Timothy's effectiveness and his strength in these perilous times, because Timothy himself was a man of firm, strong convictions. Yes, people are deceiving and they're being deceived, but Timothy is fundamentally different. Timothy is encouraged to continue in what he has learned, but this goes back so much more than just head knowledge. You know, this isn't just what he's accumulated in his brain. No, Timothy has, as it says here in verse 14, firmly believed these things. The truth that Timothy has learned has molded who he is. Now, you can know all of the right things up here, you can have all of the right mentors and disciplers and pastors and teachers in your life, but if you don't have strong conviction in here, it's all going to shatter when the rubber meets the road. When you are faced with a fraction of the opposition that Timothy was faced with, or that Paul was faced with. If all it is is head knowledge up here and you don't firmly believe it in here, if you don't have true, genuine faith that molds who you are, then it will all shatter. When you're tested, all that head knowledge will do nothing for you if you haven't internalized it. And when you face dangers or trial or opposition, the only way that what you've learned can benefit you whatsoever is if you have firmly believed it. There are 
so many churches that have a wonderful doctrinal statement, you know, one that I would read and agree with every point, one that we could probably copy and paste as our own church document doctrinal statement, but those churches have failed so miserably. Now, why is that? You know, they know all of the right things, but they failed at boldly speaking truth. They failed at dealing with sin in their own church. In fact, many of them have failed at having authentic community, and over the last two years, many have failed at even having church in the first place. It leads us to wonder when we see so many churches that shut down their doors and never had community come back again, it leaves us to wonder if they truly, firmly believed what they were teaching all along. I'm sure many of you have seen that in churches that you've been a part of. They had the right teaching. They maybe even had the right mentors and role models in the church, but they belied that with their lack of strong convictions. Now, Timothy is reminded here by Paul that he is, in fact, surrounded in spirit with faithful believers. He's hearkening back to his own history. Timothy's mother and his grandmother. I mean, Timothy has a multi-generational family of a legacy of service to the Lord. He's had the blessing of being raised in a home where he could learn the Scripture. You know, and that takes us to our third crucial tool for being equipped in strength. And that's the most important of all. That's the Word of God. So we had our first, which was a strong mentor the right role model, the right discipler. The number two is having strong convictions personally. Then the third, and the most important of all, is a strong foundation with the Word of God. Now, Timothy's acquaintance with the Word of God began at a very early age. Though not all of us had that blessing. I did, and I truly hope that I never take it for granted. Because verse 15, we see that from childhood, Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, the sacred writings are talking about the Old Testament. But again, his knowledge of the Old Testament just didn't leave him with a puffed up head and a dead heart like the Pharisees. No, that knowledge was able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, as it says right here. But then in verse 16 and Verse 17, we have a passage of Scripture that many of you have memorized. We have a very commonly cited passage, and it's actually a foundational text for our theology of the Bible and the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, Let's go, those first two points, those two keys for being equipped. Think about this for a second. Timothy could have had the perfect mentor, which I'm sure all of us wish we had personally the Apostle Paul here to mentor us and disciple us, right? He could have had really firm convictions as well and a perfect upbringing, but it would mean nothing if his convictions weren't rooted in the one true standard for truth. There are plenty of people with strong mentors, but they're weak themselves. There are plenty of people that hold strongly to their convictions, but their convictions are weak because their convictions are not true convictions. They're not convictions in truth. The third and most important tool to be equipped for strength in life and in ministry is the Word of God. 
So we read in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. In your hands, you hold the authoritative, the inspired, the inerrant, the instructive, the holy word of God himself. Every chapter, every verse, every phrase, all scripture is breathed out by God. So from Paul to Timothy, and from Paul to all of us, equip yourself in this. Continue in this, because this comes from God and not from man. God spoke to prophets and apostles throughout the ages and gave us the fullness of what He would reveal to us to equip us for life and knowledge of Him and salvation. God has directly communicated truth to us through language. We've been given consciousness, the mental faculties and language to search and understand the thoughts and wisdom and commands of the divine creator of the universe. I mean, let's just sit on that for a moment. Lest we ever take it for granted, how often are do we truly have the, the gratitude that we should for the Word of God, the Scriptures breathed out by God? Just as our God truly lives, His Word is active and it's profitable. It's useful for teaching. It's useful for telling us about what is true about God, what is true about man, what is true about the world we live in, and what is true about the world to come. But beyond just teaching us about existence as it truly is, which is such a wonderful gift, the Word is useful for reproof. Reproof in the ESV, and that is to be exposed. The Word of God exposes us for who we are. It exposes our nature, our sin, our falling short. It is a light and it is a lamp, but it is also a mirror in which the Holy Spirit exposes the areas of our lives that we have not yet surrendered to Christ our King. Now, I would ask everyone here, truly, individually, personally, take inventory of yourselves with this right now. When was the last time that you allowed the Word of God to expose something in you? When was the last time? Now, we all need it, but I think all of us truly would say we do it less frequently, sometimes far less frequently than we should. But the Word is also useful for correction. Now, reproof, and correction seem like very similar terms, but no, the key idea here with correction is actually restoration. It's the other side of reproof. Now, the Word of God doesn't just show us our flaws and our faults, right? If that's the only way you're reading Scripture, then you're, you're reading Scripture with a glass half empty or glass half full. You're just doing half of it. No, the Word is also useful for correction. It restores us. It leads us on the path of restoration, of wholeness, of joy and peace. And the Word is also useful for training in righteousness. The Word of God trains the people of God. It instructs. It builds up. It prepares us. And yes, it strengthens us. It forms a complete man or woman in God 
as verse 17 says, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, so that we may be proficient, that we may be capable, that we may be prepared to do whatever God has called us, redeemed us, and gifted us to do today, to do tomorrow, to do this week, to do in our lives in service of Him until He returns or calls us home. So I ask all of you to examine your walk with the Lord. Are you equipped to be strong in these times? God didn't make a mistake by creating you to live in these times, in this place. You too are on assignment by your Savior and your King and your Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Are you equipped to be strong in these times and carry out that assignment that He's given you for your life to glorify Him and be an ambassador for Him? Do you have those three things that we talked about that can equip you for strength? Do you have a strong disciple or mentor? Do you have someone that you can identify and say, hey, this is a person who I can see their conduct and model my life after and my own conduct. This is a person who I can walk through the Word with, who can teach me, who can build me up. And then on the flip side of that, are you equipped to be doing the same to others? Are you seeking to be a discipler to others? We're not just supposed to be fed, we're also supposed to feed and be disciples who make disciples who can then make disciples. Do you have those relationships in your life? Then also, do you have strong conviction in what you know to be true? Do you stand firm on the Word of God? Because most of all, do you have a strong foundation in the source of truth itself, the very breathed out Word of God? Now from... The first moment I I stepped foot in this church, a little over a year ago, and my wife and I knew that we were called to come here to minister and leave our home in Laramie, Wyoming, the Lord put such a tremendous burden on my heart to see a church that was embodying all of these things. A church where there was faithful, healthy discipleship and community where more mature believers were pouring into the newer believers and the less mature, that they were being taught so that then they could teach others. Thriving discipleship and community, but also a church where we had strong convictions. And most of all, a strong foundation in the source of truth itself, the Word of God. I know that doesn't sound much like a flashy vision of, oh, we're going to build a, a new building or anything like that, but that's, this is all I care about. I care about the integrity of this church as it follows the Word of God, that all of us are honoring Christ here and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, and that we are disciples who are making disciples. All the other flashy, big-time church stuff, we can leave for the mega churches. But this is... What's on my heart? I'm so thankful that I was able to share it with you this Sunday morning. But what are you doing to equip yourself to be strong in these times? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you didn't leave us as orphans, that we have your indwelling Holy Spirit for all of us who have been redeemed by you. 
I thank you that we have your word, the very breathed out word of God. I pray that we never take it for granted. But Lord, I pray that this church would be a church where we are disciples who are making disciples, pouring into one another from what we've learned and teaching others that they would teach others also, that we are modeling a transformed life in our conduct how we are with our spouses, with one another, with our families, with everyone in this church, that we've won another, one another properly. Lord, I also pray that you would raise up strong men and women in this church who are strong and firm in their convictions. But Lord, lest we ever forget that we, the hills that we die on, the convictions that we are strong about are from your truth itself, your breathed out word. We give you all the glory in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King. Amen.